Let's pray and ask the Lord to, uh, to just bless our time in his word. God, we do want to hear from you and, and grow and become more like you. So please give us open ears and open hearts to be uh, conformed to the image of Christ. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. So we said last week that uh, we're at a transition point now in the epistles in the New Testament because up to this point, all the epistles have been written to churches. And Paul wrote the book of Romans to the church in Rome, the book of Galatians to the church in Galatia, and so on and so forth. And we're at a transition point where now we're getting the personal letters that Paul wrote. And so the books of First and Second Timothy, Titus and Philemon, are written to individuals. They're written to Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And specifically, First and Second Timothy and Titus are what's called the pastoral epistles. They're written to young pastors serving the Lord in ministry, and Paul is encouraging them, hey, here's how you should be holding fast to the truth. Here's how you should be teaching the church. Here's how you should be encouraging and admonishing the people in your church. And so it's really a couple of things. It's Paul's encouragement to an individual, but it's also Paul's commentary on how does a healthy church function and what's the role of everyone in the church because everyone has a role in ministry, in full-time ministry, in serving the Lord in the church. And so the book is not just for pastors, it's for every single one of us to really look at and say, okay, Paul, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is outlining what should be the definition of a healthy church. How should a healthy church function? How should it be led? How should the people be responding? What does that look like? And so there's immense application for all of us in this. And so last week we looked, uh, chapters 1 and 2, you know, Paul's, Paul's encouraging Timothy, hold fast to what you already know. Stay in the word. Continue to teach like I was teaching. And then he gets in chapter two into the roles of men and women in the church. He gets into specifically sort of what's his primary, what should be the primary emphasis of the church, which is prayer. And he'll get into other emphasis, emphases tonight. Um, but he says, first of all, first, out of everything else that should mark a church, and, and really as we take that back, out of everything else that should mark a healthy Christian, Prayer should be what defines us. Prayer should be the first, the first recourse that we go to when we have a problem. Prayer should be the first assumption of what should we do right now? Well, I don't know. Let's, well, let's start by praying. Not let's end by praying when we've run out of options. Let's start by praying. Prayer should be what defines us. And then he goes into, hey, while we're in this, we all have specific roles and specific callings within the church. Men need to be exhorted in specific ways. Women need to be exhorted in specific ways. And so he does that. And tonight he picks it up in chapter three. And he's going to kind of be continuing that thought. But he's going to start discussing leadership in the church. And he says, chapter 3, verse 1. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop, then, must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well having his children in submission with all reverence, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. It's important when we read uh, in the pastoral epistles, and Paul gives a description of a position in the church, that we read it as Paul meant it to be read and not as the church has necessarily interpreted it. So when Paul says, okay, 
If someone desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good thing. Pretty much automatically, everybody in your mind has a, probably a different idea of what exactly that means. Because a bishop means several things depending on your background, right? It's either a chess piece or it's somebody in a specific position in the Roman Catholic Church or maybe in the Episcopalian Church. And, and it's this idea of a position of, you know, maybe kind of overseeing a, a cluster of churches and, and you're sort of, it means something in different backgrounds. Well, that's not really what Paul is using this word in context of. In Scripture, we're given a couple different words for the roles of leadership in the church. And basically, there's the idea of the bishop, elder, pastor, teacher. It's really, it's different words, but he's always talking about the same role. And that's the person leading the church. And there's another role, which we'll get to in a bit here, which is the role of the deacon. Okay, but specifically, when he's talking about a bishop, he's talking about a pastor or an elder. The person who is in a, in a place of authority in the church to help lead the church. And he's, so he's going to give us qualifications. All right, so let's start off. He says, if, if you desire this, if you want to be in a position where you can influence other people for the kingdom of God, it's a good work. It is good, but it is work. It's a job. It should not be a hobby. It should never be an attempt to, to do a 10-hour work week and get paid for a 40-hour work week. It should never be that. It's a good work. James warns teachers in, in his epistle. He says, don't let too many of you want to be teachers because you're going to fall under a stricter judgment. The Lord holds teachers to a higher level of accountability because every one of us is responsible for our own relationship with the Lord. But there is a specific level of accountability that comes when you start steering people in a direction saying, hey, this is how you should walk with the Lord. And, and to lead someone astray, to misguide someone in that, the Lord will take it very seriously. They will still be responsible ultimately for their actions, but the Lord will take your role in that very seriously. And so it's a work. It is not something to take lightly, but it is also a good work. It is a good thing. If you desire, if you're in a position in your life where you say, I want to be able to influence people for the kingdom of God, that is a great thing. It, it should be you should consider it a great thing, but you should take it seriously. He says a bishop then must be blameless. Now, blameless does not mean perfect because if the first requirement of being a pastor was perfect, uh, there would be no pastors, right? So, but the idea is he's not, he's not actively walking in a sin that he's refusing to repent of. He's not actively rebelling against God. And the husband of one wife, really it means a, a one woman man. And so some churches take this to say, if a man has ever been divorced, he can never be in a leadership position. I would say it depends on the context. Was the man a Christian when it happened? Did she abandon him? Was he, if he was beating his wife, then yeah, no, he's not qualified right now. But there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of diversity in the reasons that divorce happens. And so it, should be, it needs to be taken into consideration. But at the time that he's looking at this role, his reputation needs to be taken into consideration and say, is this the guy who's committed to one woman? Is this guy taking his marriage seriously? He needs to be temperate. He needs to be sober-minded. He needs to be of good behavior. This guy should not be, you know, this is not like a country song where you're drunk on Friday and, and in church on Sunday. A, a leader in the church needs to have a certain level of sobriety in how he lives his life. Not to be dull, but to put his emphasis on that the joy he has is from the Holy Spirit. Hospitable, able to teach. So hospitable 
he needs to be willing to welcome people, right? Uh, a person in a position of leadership in a church should not be stiff towards people because that's kind of, it kind of goes with the territory a little bit. If, if you're going to be in a position of saying, hey, welcome to church. We're glad you're here. We're not actually glad you're here. We wish you'd leave, but welcome to church. It doesn't really carry the right idea of helping express the love of God. So uh, a bishop, elder, pastor, that role needs to be hospitable, needs to be able to teach. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's got to be the best public speaker ever, but it means that he needs to be able to explain. He needs to be able to teach and say, and this isn't based on his brilliance, but he needs to be able to go to the word of God and say, you know what? I've read something about that. Let's look at it together. Let's see what the Word of God says. If, if you're having a struggle with this or a question about this, hey, Word of God says this. I think that applies to your situation. He needs to be not given to wine. Now, we'll get into this a little bit more when we get down to the deacons. But Paul here, he makes a distinction between the, the role of a bishop or a pastor or an elder and the role of a deacon. And the bishop, pastor, elder, Paul says they need to be not given to wine. And when he starts talking about deacons, he says they need to not be given to much wine. And so you want to be careful to not overread into the scripture. But I think there's a principle where it is a wise policy for any person in a leadership role in the church to abstain from alcohol. Because they're, you know, in, in a sense, their job is to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is sufficient. And so if, if, I'm, if I'm called or if you're called, whatever in that capacity of teaching people, hey, Jesus Christ is sufficient. Excuse me while I go uh, indulge in the substance that I'm addicted to. Really to whatever extent or whatever chemical or alcohol. It, a pastor should not be dependent on something other than the Holy Spirit to get him through. It shouldn't be, as, you know, as, as the stupid coffee cups or the whatever, that all I need is Jesus and coffee. That's really, I don't think the Lord finds that nearly as amusing as we do. But, uh, he enjoys a lot of things, don't, don't get me wrong, but you don't need Jesus in coffee. You don't need Jesus in alcohol. You don't need Jesus in pain medicine. You don't need Jesus in anything else. You need Jesus Christ. And, and so a pastor, a elder, a bishop, someone who's in a position of authority in a church needs to take that very seriously. He needs to be not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. Not covetous. He needs to not see the role of leadership in a church as a means to an end. It's never an opportunity to be in a position of influence so that you can get something out of people. It is a position of giving something to people. And he needs to be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Paul's not saying that if a man's children ever walk away from the Lord, or leave his house in rebellion, that he's disqualified. But he's making a point that the home is where your behavior is going to be demonstrated. Okay? You can't fake it at home, right? People know you just, the people at your home just know you too well. You cannot fake it at home. You can fake it at church so stinking well, right? But you go at home, and man, they just don't like you. Sometimes. Sometimes they really do, but it's, it's a little more honest. And so the, you ought to be able to look at the man's wife and children and their interaction with him and, and realize, okay, either this man is living a consistent lifestyle 
or a inconsistent lifestyle. I remember a story, um, there was a guy who, totally different place and time, so none of you know, uh, got a job as an assistant pastor at a church. They had the kind of the, you know, the, hey, welcome the new assistant pastor. He's greeting the people on the way out. Pastor's daughter walks up to him, shakes his hand, says, your kids are going to hate you, by the way, and walks out the door. Now, that's kind of problematic, right? If, if, that's, uh, if that's the role of the pastor, if that's how his children see him. So Paul's making a point that within the home, your kids still have free choice. If your children choose to rebel against the word of God, that is their responsibility. But if you're setting a pattern of never disciplining, of never leading your children, then you're probably not going to carry out a pattern into the church very well. And he says, verse 6, not a novice. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. A person in leadership should have been a Christian for a little bit of time. There should be a period of growth. There should be some time to watch and say, okay, are these patterns consistent? Is this something that the Lord is working in deep? Right? Is this more than just surface level? And then verse 7, moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So that's the, that's the role of a leader in the church. And if you desire that, that's a good work. If you desire to have that position of influence, even not necessarily in a direct brick-and-mortar church, but in the church of your home, right? In your position of spiritual influence, that's a good work. These are then our attributes that you should be looking to aspire to. I wanna, if you want to serve the Lord well and, and pass on what he's given to you, then this is a good place to start. Okay, Lord, I want these things to be true of my life. Would you please work these in? and work the other things out. Verse 8, he goes on. He's now going to talk about the role of deacons. Likewise, we'll read the whole paragraph and then we'll go back. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. I will stop there because verse 11 is complicated. So likewise, deacons must be reverent. Now, again, when I say the word deacon, that means different things to different ones of you based on where your church background is, okay? So let's back it up. Biblically, what does the word deacon mean? It means servant. So likewise, servants in the church. So Paul's making a point here, and this is, this is really, really critical. The role of a deacon is to just serve in the church, to help out however and wherever they can. In Greek, it's really similar to another word that translates under rower, which is the idea, if you can picture like the Roman ships, when, they don't, when there's no wind, they've got to row the boat. And sometimes they would have multiple tiers of rowers. And so there'd be a group of guys in the bottom of the boat who had one job, and that was to grab an oar and row where they were told to go. And, and so the word is very similar. So an under rower is someone who just says, I've got a job. And that's, I'm going to help get this ship from point A to point B. I might not even know where point B is. I don't need to know what the weather's like. I don't need to know whether or not I agree with the decisions. But I've got a mission and a call right now, and it's to get this ship where it needs to go. That's the idea of a deacon. A deacon is a servant. It's a person who helps in the church. And what's interesting in this is that Scripture holds this up as a very valuable role in the church. Deacons 
do most of the underappreciated work in a church. And the scripture takes it as a very serious role. If you think, go back to the book of Acts. If you want to flip over there, you can. If you don't want to flip over there, I'm going to read it. But in Acts chapter 6, we get the first, uh, the first group of deacons in scripture. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hellenist. By the Hel- against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve, that's the twelve apostles, summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And they list the other six guys. In verse 6, it says, Whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So there's a problem in the early church, which is that there are the Hellenistic Jews, which are basically Greeks who had converted to Judaism, and there were widows among the Hellenistic Jews who felt like they weren't getting a fair share of the bread that was being distributed to the poor. And so the problem arises. It's a legitimate problem, and the apostles say we would, they're, not, they're not above this, but they say there's a need that we cannot neglect, and that is we've been given the charge of prayer and teaching the word of God. And so pick seven men of good reputation, full of wisdom, and the Holy Spirit. And back up in your mind, what is this, these, guys, these seven guys' job? Their job is to hand bread to widows. Now, you could argue that it doesn't take that much to accomplish that job, Right? I mean, you set up a table, there's bread on the pile, hand the bread, say next, hand out the next piece of bread, say next. The 12 apostles say, you get seven men, they better have a good reputation, and they need to be full of faith in the Holy Spirit. The role of servanthood in the church is an incredibly valuable role. Jesus said, whoever wants to be greatest needs to be the servant. Jesus holds up servanthood. He never says it's wrong to want to be great in the kingdom of God. But he says, if you want to get there, you are going to get there by being a servant. And so Paul is explaining a specific role in the church, and that is the role of the person who says, you know what? I just want to serve in this church however I can. And Paul holds it up as not just, hey, throw any bum you can find in there, but hey, if people want to serve in the church, this is an opportunity to encourage them. Hey, it's awesome that you want to help. Let's help as you're growing in the Lord. Let's take this seriously. You are not doing this so the building looks nice. You are not doing this so people aren't distracted. You are doing this for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so it is a serious role. Okay? So he says the deacons must be reverent. And the word in Greek um, really is almost more like they must act in such a way that people revere them. It must have a conduct that is respectable, not double-tongued. A deacon, a servant in the church, should not be hypocritical, not given to much wine. So the bishops, pastors, elders are told to be not given to wine. The deacons are told, hey, just don't go crazy, right? Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. To serve in the church, this is, this is so incredible. Paul says, if you want to serve in the church, you should be holding on to the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. You should have a solid grasp on the grace of God and the fact that God loves you and that, the, and that it's a mystery 
It is a mystery why God would love any of us, but you should be holding on to that. Isn't that an awkward, isn't that just so counter to what we think of when we think of servanthood in the church? Servanthood in the church is, is where you put, well, in, in a real church, it's where you put the interns, right? Uh, it, it's, it's the job we find, okay, who can we find? Who's, you know, who's just clueless enough that they'll say, how can I help? And they'll actually mean it. You know, like it's this whole conspiracy. Not, yeah, it might be a conspiracy. I don't know. That's, that's strong, but not too strong. It's a quasi-conspiracy because, you know, people aren't going to help unless we kind of edge them in. And, and instead, Paul's got this idea of, hey, Timothy, you teach people the word of God. You teach people that they need to be marked by prayer. And then when they want to serve, you help them grow in this area. So the deacons should be having these things. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. So don't just, Paul says, hey, take this real seriously. This is something, if someone wants to help out in the church, consider it. Because they are setting an example for the other people in the church. This is not something you just dump on somebody. This is something you think about, you pray about. If someone says, hey, I really want to be involved in this church, take that seriously. In verse 11, he says, Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. So there's a couple important things we need to unpack from this verse. First of all, the wives of a deacon should also be respectable. Right? If, if the husband's coming to church early to help and the wife is showing up late and drunk, there's probably a problem going on. Maybe we should kind of address this, right? But look at, look at your Bible and there's a couple of things you need to know. First of all, it says, likewise, their wives must be reverent. Okay, the word there and the words must be are in italics. So when you see words in italics in your Bible, that means that it's not there in the original text, but when the translators took it from Greek to English, they're putting these words in to help the sentence flow more naturally because Greek has a different grammar structure than English and so the translators are saying okay we're trying to make this sentence flow so it's easier to understand but we don't want you to be confused so we're putting it in italics so that you can understand which part we're adding and which part is direct so it could literally read likewise wives reverent okay as Paul is just kind of knocking bullet points but it also could read likewise women because the word wives there is used about 200 times in the New Testament. And over half of the time it's translated women. And the rest of the time it's translated wives. And so some people hold, and I'm, I'm one of them, that the role of the deacon is a role that can be held by men or women. Paul says in chapter 2 that a woman cannot have the position of authority in the church. She, she's not allowed to be the senior pastor. But Paul says, hey, if the woman wants to be a deacon... As long as she's reverent, not a slanderer, temperate, and faithful in all things, absolutely. And so, understand that, kind of, you know, go back. You, if you're not careful, you can read 1 Timothy and think like, wow, there's nothing for women to do. No, there's, you know, if they want to be involved in the church. There's immense opportunity. You know, there's opportunity to be in the role of a deacon, which back in Acts, the disciples said, if you want to be in that role, make sure that you have a good reputation, that you're full of faith in the Holy Spirit. It's not a, a role to say, well, that's, you know, they're getting, it's getting dumped on you. It's a privilege. And frankly, the role of deacon is, I would say, most often filled by women in the church. I mean, just think about, okay, think about our church here. The role of serving, the role of helping get logistical things done practically. 
most of the time, the ladies in this church are all over it, right? We all just ate a meal. That meal's going to get cleaned up. The men are probably going to be playing euchre, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But, but if you, you know, and I know, that like 90% of the cleanup work that happens on a Wednesday night is done by the women. And it's not because the men are, it might be because the men are dumping, and there could be something there. But really, it's because they understand the privilege of serving, right? It's a blessing to watch the ladies in this church do what they do and do it for the glory of God. And Paul says, hey, this is, a, this is a great calling. Take it seriously. Don't ever see it as, oh, I have to. See it as a privilege. God is giving you an opportunity. He's giving every one of us, any person in the church can be a deacon. There are requirements. Paul says these should be marking you, right? But if you're coming to church regularly enough that you want to help serve in the church, then that means these things are going to be happening because the Holy Spirit is doing a work in your heart. He's stirring you up. He's encouraging you. He's growing you. He's building you. In verse 12, he says, let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. So a similar command for the role of a deacon. Verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. That's incredible if you think about it. Back it up and read it again. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. If you serve as a deacon, if you're a, a servant in the church, an under rower, who says, you know what, I just want to help get this thing where it needs to go. I'm going to just grab an oar and go. Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you're going to obtain a good standing. There is a reward from God Almighty for that. The Lord says, that is something worth rewarding and celebrating, and I'm going to bless that person for that. And they also obtain great boldness in the faith. That's a cool promise. You want to be bold in your faith. Work it backwards. If you want to be bold in your faith, Paul says the way you do that is by being a deacon. The way you be a deacon is just by serving. Service makes us bold. And it makes you bold because when you're serving, you get to see all the little miracles that the Lord does. The Lord does miracles in a church every week. Okay? And the people who are serving in the background get to watch them happen. Okay? I, and, and it builds up their faith. I have been on the worship team for a long time. I've seen a lot of worship practices that did not go well. Right? Where we got to the end of it and we just all collectively looked at each other and said, this is going to be rough. And I have watched, and sometimes it is rough, but I've watched an awful lot of times when the Lord just blesses it and things flow. And, and, it, and it goes well because the Lord enjoys helping people worship him, right? I've watched a lot of times when I looked at the amount of food in that line and the, and the amount of people in that line and thought, this is not going to work. And I get through and you know what? There's food left. I am, I am convinced. You could argue with me all day long. You will not change my mind. I am convinced I have seen the Lord multiply the food in that line. And so when we are planning for Wednesday night church and how much food do we think we should get? I don't, I don't ever recommend being irresponsible. You know, we should try and have a rough idea of about this many people tend to come and uh, let's try and make about that much food. But if, if more people show up, honestly, I don't sweat it. There's a lot of other things I do sweat, okay? Don't misunderstand me. This isn't like time to explain how great I am. But if you get to, if you get to watch what goes on in the background, 
you get to watch the Lord do things and it builds your boldness, okay? And so, and I, I just like that example because it's kind of dumb, but I really don't worry about running out of food, ever. I really don't. Now, I'm not getting thirds necessarily. I'm, I'm still being responsible, but honestly, I've seen the Lord do it. I've seen the Lord make sure that the people of God have what they need. And so there's a boldness like, hey, you know what? The Lord can take care of it. Uh, and, and when you serve, when you're in a position of, hey, let's watch the Lord work as we're doing the work of the Lord, you get that. You get those opportunities, and so your faith is strengthened. In verse 14, Paul says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. So, Paul says, hey, I'm hoping to get there soon, but in case I'm delayed, I'm writing this to you. And aren't you just a little bit thrilled that Paul was delayed, right? Paul's plans did not work out the way he hoped, and so he wrote a book on how to do church that we get to read 2,000 years later and that we get to grow in and say, okay, this is what the Lord wants. And I'm sure Paul and Timothy both probably wish that they could have been back together in person sooner, but you know what? We are reaping the benefits of Paul's plans not going the way he hoped. And the Lord likes to do that. So if your plans aren't going the way you hope, you know what? It's because the Lord is doing something bigger than your plans. And then he wraps up with just kind of a, a small creed about the Lord. So chapter four, Paul's gonna start to shift gears here. And he's been talking about sort of roles in the church. And now he's gonna start talking a little bit more about doctrines in the church. And if you're, if you're teaching in the role, he's warning Timothy, he's, here are the things you need to be watching out for. And so this is very direct. It's a lot of direct application for pastors, elders, bishops. But really, if you wanna be part of a healthy church, these are things that we should all be watching for and aware of and looking for. So chapter four, verse one. He says, now the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So first of all, Paul says, the Spirit expressly says, and we know that the Spirit especially says it because Paul wrote it down, okay? The Spirit expressly says, in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. Now, this is a little bit of a, it's one of those, it can be a controversial issue. But if you're just reading the Bible and taking it as it comes, here we go. Can you depart from the faith? Yes. How do we know? Because the Spirit expressly says. So some people get all hung up on, can you lose your salvation? And when you come to a verse, well, what, is, what about when the Bible says that, you know, uh, you know, he'll never leave us or forsake us or that your uh, salvation is assured? Absolutely. Well, but what about when he says that someone will depart from the faith? Yeah, absolutely. What about the verses that say that God is sovereign? Yeah, absolutely. What about the verses that say I'm responsible? Yeah, absolutely. Some will depart from the faith. So it's possible to leave your salvation. Now, don't confuse it with can you lose your salvation? Because losing is what happens when you misplace something, 
right? It was right here, and now I don't know where it's at. You will never lose your salvation in the same way that you lose your car keys. It is not the right word. You will never wake up one day and say, where did my Christianity go? But you can leave it. You can. It is possible to look at truth and say, I don't want it. Right? John talks about light shone in the darkness and men loved darkness rather than light. Men are capable of knowing exactly the right thing to do and choosing to do the wrong thing. So in the latter times, some will depart from, faith in the, from the faith and they'll give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. There are doctrines in the church that are from demons. And there are spirits in the church that are there for the express purpose of deceiving people. And he said they will speak lies and hypocrisy. These, these people will know the truth and refuse to walk in it. They are going to be hypocrites who are lying because having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Never underestimate the human mind's ability to lie to itself until it believes that it's the truth. Human beings are incredibly good at lying to ourselves, and we can do it for so long that we are now incapable of hearing the truth. And that's why the Lord is always so big on, hey, you know what, repent now. Come back now. Read the word now. Pray now. Now is your chance. If you wait, it gets harder. You stiffen, right? You, you grow more resistant, more callous. And so the Lord says, hey, if, if the Lord's speaking to you to say, do something, do it now. And he says, they're going to forbid to marry and command to abstain from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving. So Paul's, he's making a point, there's going to be false doctrines arising, but specifically he highlights two of them. And incidentally, you want to be as respectful as you can, but these are two of the primary definers of the Catholic Church. Now, let's back it up and let's be really clear what I am saying and what I am not saying. That's always helpful, okay? So, can you be a Catholic and go to heaven? Absolutely. Because what is required for salvation? You need to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Are there Catholics, are there people in the Catholic Church who believe that? Absolutely. So there will, and I say that emphatically, there will be people in heaven who are part of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has gotten a ton of things incredibly right. But the Catholic Church has also gotten a ton of things incredibly wrong. And so to say, hey, if you really want to love the Lord, you need to not get married if you really love the Lord as a man, you need to become a priest. If you really love the Lord as a woman, you need to become a nun and, and commit to never raising a family, to never experiencing marriage. Paul says right here in the Bible, that is a demonic doctrine. That is a lie. And so it's possible, and, 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 and the risk is you can fall into doctrines that sound great if you're not in the Word. Right? And, and think about it, okay? I mean, frankly, in the Catholic Church, you have some people who are so devoted to the Lord, who love the Lord so much that they are willing to say, I will forgo marriage. I will forgo a family. I am willing to lay that aside in the pursuit of the Lord. Because that's what they're told needs to happen if they really want to have a deep relationship with the Lord. And they say, I want a deep relationship. I will do whatever it takes. And then you also wind up with, though, What? with evil men who say, hey, this is a great opportunity to get really close to people and do awful things, right? 
and I can do it all in the name of God. And it gives me this nice shadow covering. And so, so it attracts the best and the worst of human intentions. And commanding to abstain from foods, you the idea of, hey, you know what? We don't eat certain things because it makes us more spiritual. No, 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 no. Clarify, back up. If you don't eat something for personal conviction, if you don't eat something for dietary reasons, God bless you. There's a lot of good sense in that. But if you don't eat something because you think that not eating it is going to make you more spiritual than another person, that's dumb. Because all of a sudden, what you just said is, okay, in order to be saved, in order to really have a serious relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ had to come to earth. He had to become a man. He had to live a perfect life. He had to die for my sins. He had to rise from the dead. He had to ascend to heaven. He had to give me the promise of eternal life. He had to fill me with his Holy Spirit, and I had to not eat this bit of food. That is horribly offensive. Because you tack one thing onto the salvation of God, and you are now insulting the Lord. So Paul says, this is demonic. Because it, it, it's, it's a deception, but it makes us feel like we're kind of in charge just a little bit. We can sort of dial our spirituality up or down based on what we eat or don't eat, based on whether or not we get married. And all of a sudden, we're in the driver's seat again. Paul says, no, no, that is not your role. You are not supposed to be in the driver's seat. Jesus Christ is supposed to be in the driver's seat. You are not in charge. God is. And he says, so they're going to say, you know, you can't eat these things. But verse 4, he says, for every creature of God is good. And nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. You can't say that a certain food will make you more or less spiritual. You can say that eating certain food is dumb. Like, there are certain foods that, God bless you, it's just dumb to eat them. Okay? Um, Everybody's got their own take on what that is. So I'm not going to say anything judgmental. But he says, look, Jesus said it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of the mouth. Because what comes out of the mouth is a reflection of what's already in the heart. So don't hold up food as some sort of spiritual thing. In verse 6, he says, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. So instruct the brethren in these things. Instruct the brethren to be focused on Jesus Christ. And he says, if you do this, you're going to be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Do you know how you tell a false doctrine? Across the board. Across the board. No matter how slick it is, no matter how smooth, or how awesome, or popular, or fresh, or old it is, you identify false doctrine by what it does with the role of Jesus Christ. If a doctrine puts you in a position of authority over Christ, it's false. If a doctrine lets you say, hey, you can be a little more spiritual than this person, if you do this, it's false. If a doctrine says you can make Jesus Christ love you more by performing in this way, it's false. And so Paul is warning Timothy, warn the people in your church, instruct them in these things. Look to Jesus Christ. Don't look to anything else. Look to the words that he's written down for us. Don't look to anything else. Look to the Lord. And if you instruct him in these things, you're going to be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine. Verse 7, but reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourselves toward godliness. Do not get hung up in, in cute theology or old wives' fables. Don't, don't get hung up, you know, the, the hypotheticals of Christianity and, well, you know, do angels yawn and, and some of that stuff, like whatever. I read that in a book this week, so it's been on my mind. Um, who cares, right? Like, focus on Jesus Christ. 
And we said last week, sort of the primary message of this book is, hey, focus. In verse 8, he goes on, For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life which now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. All right. Again, it's important to understand here what he is saying and what he isn't saying. What he is not saying is that bodily exercise is a waste of time. What he is saying is it is not nearly as important because bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. So let's back it up. There is some very real value in exercising your body, in disciplining your body. Your body is an amazing gift from God. And and you're the steward of it, and you can affect the quality of it. And really, by extension, you can affect your ability to minister to other people. But here's the deal. If your goal is to be, you know, fit and buff and have six-pack abs and look good with your shirt off, I don't want to see you with your shirt off. I just don't. Like, you know, there's no need. We're, We're good. We're not that kind of friend. So bodily exercise is only going to take you so far, and it's only going to last for so long, right? I don't care. Health is dying as slowly as possible. That's sort of the definition of being healthy. Uh, So however fit you are, it's going to start fading. It's going to slide. It might be slow. You You might stretch it out, but health does not endure forever. Your body withers and fades away. But godliness, Paul says, is profitable for all things. If you're disciplining your body for the sake of of great abs, that'll get you some things. That won't get you all things. Godliness will get you everything you need. And if you pursue godliness and and you're worried about letting go of your six-pack abs, if you pursue godliness, you're going to grow in saying, you know what, I'm a steward. I want to be faithful in how I steward my body. But godliness is not just worried about your body. Godliness is worried about your mind and your soul and your ministry to other people around you and your service to the kingdom of God. You grow in that, everything else falls into place. You obsess over, over you know, old wives' tales or doctrines of demons or bodily exercise. And, and sooner or later, you're missing something. But you focus on godliness and it's profitable for all things. And this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Paul's saying, basically, you tell the people, get in line with what I'm saying. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. It's interesting because on Sunday we were in Philemon where Paul's like, hey, I'm not going to tell you what to do. But you do kind of owe me your soul, so I'm just going to throw this out as a suggestion. You know, Paul's, so Paul in Philemon, he's like, hey, a little bit of gracious manipulation here, buddy. But First Timothy, Paul says, hey, you command this and you teach this. This is not a suggestion, Paul is saying. The idea that you need to focus on Jesus Christ, that first of all, prayer should be our emphasis. These aren't ideas. These aren't good thoughts. These aren't good vibes or positive energy. These things are commands from the Lord. And the Holy Spirit expected Paul to take them seriously. Paul expected Timothy to take them seriously. God felt the need to preserve these words for us for 2,000 years so that we could take them seriously. He says, hey, you command these things and teach these things. You make sure that if you're in that position of a deacon or a bishop, that the people that you have an ability to influence understand that there is one job, and that is to focus on Jesus Christ. 
And so he goes on in verse 12. He says, let no one despise your youth. Now he's getting to Timothy personally. Timothy's a young pastor. All implications are he was a little bit of, he didn't quite have nice guy syndrome, but he needed some encouragement to just kind of, you know, hold fast. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Hey, don't let anybody look down on you. And especially if you're a young person, do not let somebody look down on you. But here's the thing, don't demand respect, earn respect. Paul says, you don't need to take that from anybody, but you don't tell them, hey, I don't take that from anybody. You demonstrate in your words, in your conduct, in how you love them, in your spirit, in your faith, and in your purity that the Holy Spirit has done a work in you. If someone, if you deserve respect in the church, understand this, it's never because of who you are. It's because of the role of the Holy Spirit, right? You can learn, I can learn from any person in this church if the Holy Spirit is working in their lives. Any three-year-old can say, you and I learned today and can whack you in the head with the truth from the Lord, right? Because age is not a requirement for the Holy Spirit to work. The Holy Spirit can work in anybody's life. So Paul says, hey, you don't let anybody look down on you, but you set an example. Till I come, verse 13, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. So do not, yeah, I'll keep going. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So Paul says, be an example, and until I get there, you give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. You read the word, you encourage the people to walk in the word, and you explain to them what the word of God says. That's, that's the MO for how Timothy was supposed to roll. That's the MO for how this church is supposed to roll. Till Paul shows up. And when Paul shows up, we'll be in heaven with the Lord, right? So, it's, it's so, really, and so until that happens, we're supposed to give attention to reading, not reading novels, not reading, not, God bless you if you like, I like novels, but not in church. Reading the word of God, exhorting the people, hey, this is what the word of God says and we should be living it out. And in doctrine, hey, this is what we need to understand about the character of God, about the nature of sin, about our role in the kingdom of God. He says, you meditate on these things. You give yourself to them that your progress may be evident to all. So Paul's exhortation to Timothy, he says, hey, you know what you need to do? You need to keep growing. Keep growing. Your progress should be evident, not because you're making yourself awesome by your own works, but because the Holy Spirit is working, because you are focused on godliness. Because bodily exercise, that profits a little. But godliness is profitable for all things. So Paul's, that's Paul's exhortation to Timothy. Next week, we're going to wrap up 1 Timothy, Lord willing. Chapters 5 and 6, he's going to get into more practical instruction for the church. How should the church take care of people in need? Uh, sort of what's the role of when you get greedy people in the church and, and some of those things. So I would encourage you to read it ahead of time. Chapters 5 and 6 will not take you that long. Read it a couple times before we 
come back together and let's see what the Lord wants to say. But in the meantime, let's stay focused. Let's give ourselves to these things. Let our progress be evident to all. We just want to keep growing. Not because it will make God love us more. Never for that reason. But because God loves us so much, we want to grow closer to that love. Because his presence is so holy and he's invited us there, we want to get closer to that holiness. Because his goodness is there, we want to get closer to that goodness. And so Paul says, focus. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, he'll say in chapter, I think he'll say it in chapter 6. He says it in the Bible, but I forget where. So, there you go. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would work it deep into our hearts. God, whatever, whatever role we have in our family, in our home, in this church, we want it to be for your glory. We want to see you exalted above everything else. So we pray that you would give us a single focus, a single mind. We want to be people who are fixated on Jesus Christ, obsessed with who he is and what he's done and what he's doing. So we pray that you would do those things in our hearts, God. Guide us and lead us. Teach us more of yourself. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.